my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. With an academic background in employment law, Ade Adeniji is a Dutch-based British consultant, coach, trainer, investigator, and mediator with over 20 years' experience in human resources and public, private, and not-for-profit sectors. Ade is also the founder and director of Walk With You Coaching and Consulting, where he encourages leaning into vulnerability and cultivating one's self-expression. I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> um, I have to admit that I was a little geeked out to discover that Ade is one of the contributing writers in the 2014 Black and Gay in the UK, an anthology. This book, for me, was one of the ones artfully displayed on my coffee table in Los Angeles. And I'm not just saying that. <laughs> so I was excited when I found that out. Also, it travels with me in my Kindle library on my current journey as a digital nomad in Europe. Now back to Ade. He is also the co-author of 2012's Love Me As I Am, Gay Men Reflect on Their Lives. It goes without saying that I am very much looking forward to my conversation with Mr. Adenergy. So without further ado, greetings and welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. I could feel my heart beating faster as you were reading that out. And it's so great to hear you talk about Black and Gay in the UK. Um, it was such a pleasure and honor to be one of the contributors to that anthology. Mm. Yeah, I discovered that book not too long after it came out, because that was around the time that I was starting to come to Europe on a regular basis to visit, mainly to Sweden. But then I was like, well, who else is Black and gay in Europe. And then I came across that anthology. I read all of it, but because I don't know anyone, it was personal, but you know, it's it's a different experience when I'm doing my research on you and it says, oh, he's one of the contributing writers. My heart was beating faster, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so did you go back and read my story? Actually, I did. <laughs> and I'll ask a little bit more about that later if it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So how are you? How's your uh, day shaping up so far? I'm feeling settled and grounded right now. I did some journaling about an hour ago because I was feeling really untethered and ungrounded. And I was like, oh, I need to press pause. So I got my journal out and I just did some free writing. And it was really amazing. By the time I got to half the page, I noticed my body calming down. So I'm feeling soothed and settled right now. Thank you for that reminder. I actually was touching base with a friend yesterday and shared something about a previous work experience from a few years ago. <laughs> we were doing a video chat and then he looked at me and I was like, oh, I was pretty passionate about that, wasn't I? He's like, you were. <laughs> I might need to journal about that. <laughs> so thank you for that. The power of journaling, eh? Oh my God. Yeah. I don't do it enough. <laughs> so where are you based? I divide my time between London and Harlem in the Netherlands, the original Harlem. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that's where I am right now. How long have you divided your time between these two countries? So I moved out 
to work initially in 2006. My husband is, is Dutch. I'd been here four years when I met him. So we met in yeah, 2010. Do you speak the language? I do not. I initially came out to work with an American company. And at the time, English was the spoken language within the offices. And X number of years down the line, I'm still not speaking it. It's definitely one of the countries on my list of ones to visit. And of course, heard great things about Amsterdam, about Holland or the Netherlands. You are the second identity that I've interviewed. <laughs> I noticed that. I saw something on social media yesterday. I think there was a video. Yeah. And identity popped up. I was like, oh, I wonder if we're related. <laughs> it was a female, right? Yeah, Anna. She's in Sweden. She's Swedish, but her father's Nigerian. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to look her up to see if there are any blood ties in our lineage. Oh, wow. I feel like I'm, I'm bridging people together. Family members are coming back together. <laughs> I shared in the intro a few of your professional titles, which seems like it keeps you very active. How do you divide your time between all of them? Yeah, it was really interesting listening to that. Yeah. There isn't really sort of like a formal division as such. I think ultimately, when I think of the work that I do, it really is about working with people. So I do a lot of work with people in organizations and some work with people outside of organizations. With the work I do within organizations, it really is around relationships. So relationships that people have with themselves, relationship that people have with the people they interact with, colleagues, team members, and then the relationships they have with the wider system. So that could be the organizations, that could be society as well. And sometimes within those relationships, there are ruptures. And so I can go into organizations to help them facilitate repair. So that might be through coaching, that might be through investigations, that might be through mediation or cultural audits or training, but it's really around exploring that relationship between rupture and repair and moving through in terms of a variety of emotions like shame, vulnerability, courage, empathy, compassion. And on that note, there are two other things that I also do that ties in with all of that. One is I co-run an organization called the Quest Collective, where we work with gay, bi and queer men, and we run programs to help them connect with their authentic self and express their authentic self in their world. A big piece that informs that is the research of Dr. Brené Brown, mm -hmm. whose okay. work I'm certified in. So I do a lot of work based on her research and her books as well. I did come across that two things that I saw or I found uh, certified, Daring Way and Dare to Lead Facilitator. That's right. Can you explain what those certifications are? Yeah, so Daring Way and Dare to Lead are research-based programs on the work of Dr. Brené Brown, who does a lot of work around courage, empathy, shame, vulnerability. Ultimately, it's about living a wholehearted life. So bringing our whole hearts into our interactions whilst exploring the things that get in the way of that. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. If you watch the TEDx talk that she gave, I think it was in 2010, called The Power of Vulnerability. Yeah. 
which I think it's one of the probably top three most viewed TEDx videos. And she wrote a book called Daring Greatly in 2012, I want to say, or maybe 13. And we got the opportunity to meet her, my business partner and myself, when she came to the UK, because we were really interested in how her research applied to gay, bi and queer men. So we wanted to talk to her about that, especially around shame and vulnerability. You know, we often talk about pride, celebrating pride. And one of the things that we were very conscious of is there wasn't a lot of discussion around shame, the stuff that gets in the way. It's almost like many of us grew up understanding our identity, but not being able to express that fully for a number of reasons, maybe to do with ourselves, our family, society. Mm-hmm. And so we were caught up in this whole shame. And then all of a sudden, we're out and proud. And it's like, oh, what happens before that? Let's explore the shadow side. So we wanted to talk to her more about that. We met her in 2013. She really loved the work that we were doing. And so she invited us to Texas in 2014 to train in her research. So we've been running programs since 2014 based on her work. I never thought of that we, at least my own inner dialogue, even when I reflect on when I came out, I don't like to term in the closet for me because I just was so in denial, but it went from denial to I'm out and proud. But to your point, I never thought of it like, yeah, there's a process. And for me, it seems like it's a continual process. I mean, I'd never thought about that myself because I remember coming out. I mean, there are different ways of expressing that. And coming out for me was about coming to terms with the fact that I was gay. And then that second step of sharing that with people. And so I remember starting to share that with people. And then I was like, oh, pride. I need to go to pride. And the second year of coming out, I was a steward at London Pride. And I remember going to what used to be the Black Gay Lesbian Centre in London to speak to some of the volunteers, just about coming to terms with my own sexuality. And I remember the volunteer I was speaking to said, wow, you're so brave to be a steward, you know, at Pride. Might be on television. And I was like, yeah, I need to go to Pride and just be out and proud. Mm-hmm. And what I recognized years down the line was that was my way of bypassing all that painful stuff, all that unprocessed stuff that was still there. Things like navigating relationship. I'd not been in an intimate relationship at that point. Many of the relationships I went into during that period were just dysfunctional and problematic and not great. One of the stories in the Black Again, the UK kind of ties in with all of that. And it took me many, many years to recognize that in order to fully connect with my authentic self, I needed to delve into the things that were getting in the way of that authentic self. And for me, a big part of that was shame, this feeling of not being good enough, not being worthy of love, of connection, of belonging, this feeling of in order to be acceptable, in order to be loved, in order to be worthy, I needed to be other than who I am. Mm. I mean, Brené Brown talks about the hustle for worthiness. So I needed to hustle for it by perfecting, by proving, by performing, by showing up in a different way so that people would then love me. Perfectionism. When I reread your story in Black and Gay in the UK, one of the pieces that I related to in that was around 
focusing on work and education. I know I did that for myself, and I've heard that from other gay men about this thing of, well, when you find out or if you find out, well, at least I've been really good in all these other areas of my life, and you'll hopefully accept me. Yeah, and that was a big one for me, actually. You know, my cultural heritage is Nigerian, and my dad had died by the time I'd come to terms with my sexuality. But I knew growing up that to be different, i.e. to be gay, bi, or queer, was not going to be something they accepted. And so after I started to come to terms with it myself, my inner dialogue was, I'm going to be the perfect son. So that they'll go, okay, yeah, we know he's gay, but he's also this amazing professional, this CEO for this Fortune 500 organization. So I was going to be like the perfect gay person. And so my thing was education to start off, and then it was career. So I wanted to work with organizations that people would know about. So I worked with the cabinet office in the UK. I worked with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the UK. I worked with Guardian newspapers. And in my mind, it was that sort of thing where someone might say to my mother, oh, so what does your son do for a living? And she'll go, oh, you know, he works for the Foreign Office or he works for the Guardian. And people would go, oh, isn't he amazing? And so the gay stuff is sort of like in the background and they were like, forgive me for being gay because I was perfect in other areas of my life. And that was the hustle. That was that hustle for worthiness that Brené Brown talks about. Mm, wow, about that one. In what you do with going to corporations and speaking with people, because you're talking about shame and being in the LGBT community, with your professional work, does that include talking about that in the workplace? To an extent, I think what it does include is it includes the inner landscape. So like our emotions and the stuff that gets in the way of us showing up and being our authentic selves in the workplace. So one of the things that I also do is I run DEI programs covering different aspects of that. And so sometimes part of that is around creating spaces for conscious, courageous conversations. As part of that, one of the things I'm always very fascinated about is like, what's our backstory? So when we go into whatever spaces, actually, we always have a story that we bring in. And very often, many of us don't really take time out to actually connect at that level of what story are you bringing in? So a big part of my work really is around working with people to connect with those stories and express those stories as well. Yeah, when I was sharing about my former employer that I was at for a long time, just to what you do, it would have been great to have had you there. I was aware a year or so before I left that although I'd been there a long time, I wasn't really part of people's lives because, you know, work does in some ways bring about friendships. And I remember going to a dinner or lunch for those of us who had been there more than 15 years, overhearing these stories of people's kids hanging out and growing up together or going on vacations. And I was like, well, where was I at? Mm. Because of me, not them. I was too afraid or maybe ashamed to really talk about that or to share that part of my life at work. That's something I certainly can relate to. And I hear that from many people who are marginalized in different forms. So sometimes it might be due to sexuality. Sometimes it might be to do with race. 
sometimes it might be to do with both gender and, and so many other identity markers where I know for myself, I moved through the world in fragments, like there were fragments of me that I would leave at the door. And so when I would go into organizations, very often subconsciously, what was going on for me was what parts of me are not welcome here? And I got answers to that question through what I was observing and through the conversations that were taking place. I remember with one organization where I was working, I felt that I could bring in my sexuality because they were very, very open to that, but I needed to be mindful around my race. So I needed to just be very, very conscious around that. Race was just not something that was talked about. They saw people, they saw me as a person and not as a black person. And so those conversations never really, really took place. And so where I am in terms of my life now and the work that I do, I'm always very conscious around that. When I'm working with this client, can I bring all of myself to the table? Mm. And if I can't bring all of myself to the table, maybe I make a choice, a decision not to engage with that client because I want to move through the world certainly more integrated than I used to be. My passion really now is about bringing my integrated self and working with people to give them the choice as to whether they want to bring their integrated self or not. Because some people, for whatever reason, might not want to bring their integrated self. I remember when I went freelance many years ago, I had this program called the Undivided Self at Work. It was all about bringing your integrated self. And there was someone who said to me, I don't want to bring that because my personal life is chaos and there's so much pain, there's so much trauma and work for me is an escape. So I just want to bring in my intellectual self to work and leave everything else out the door. And that was her way of coping with moving through the world. Thank you for that. Yeah. With your background in employment law, does that mean that you were studying law? Yeah. So I, I'd studied law at university. I'd gone to law school. And I think a lot of this kind of ties in with that hustling for worthiness that we were talking about earlier on. So my thing was my parents would be very proud if I was either a lawyer, an accountant, or a doctor. The doctor accountant was sort of out of the equation because I wasn't good with math. I wasn't great with the sciences. I was pretty okay with the art subject. So lawyer, I thought I'll do. I mean, at university, I certainly felt it was the wrong career choice, but I felt I was on this conveyor belt and it was very difficult to get off it. After university, went off to law school. And whilst at law school, I certainly did connect with the fact that I just couldn't see myself practicing as a lawyer, but I'd, I'd really enjoyed employment law. And so I did a master's in human resources. And one of my subjects doing that was also employment law. In fact, when I joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I joined as an employment law officer. So I was an employment law specialist there. And when I moved into um, working with Guardian newspapers, I was initially an employment specialist there as well. So I brought the law part and the human resources part together. So I did that initially before moving into mainstream human resources. For me, I'm perceiving a lot of compassion 
not to say lawyers don't have that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but hearing what you do now, it seems like you found your purpose. Certainly. I mean, I enjoyed working as an employment law specialist, actually. But one of the things that started to happen as I started to do my own inner work was I was and am very curious around the shades of grey, so the bits in the middle. And with law, it's often felt like it was the polarity, good, bad, right, wrong. And I'm like, yeah, but that space in the middle is what I'm really interested in. That's the shades of grey. And I wasn't necessarily getting that from being an employment law specialist. And the work that I do now is really around that. It's around, let's go into that space where we don't have all the answers, where it's not about good person, bad person. It's not about right, wrong. It's about, yeah, let's sort of just navigate that middle ground. I got a chance to listen to the second interview you did with the Priceless podcast. In it, you talked about your religious past and also about shame. I bring that up because you talked about the shades of gray. And for me on this platform, of course, I'm leading with learning more about individuals' professional lives. But I really like that you share about like through all of that and through ambitions and things, it's important to know, I guess, all of the layers. With that particular podcast episode, can you share a little bit about your religious past? It's quite colorful compared to a lot of ours, or diverse, I should say. (laughs) Diverse. Yes, indeed. My family are Muslims on both sides. My mother converted to Christianity when she was very young. I think she lived with an aunt who was Christian, and she kind of just took that up. And so for myself, I remember going to church with her. I was very curious around God and spirituality, and I remember on weekends Jehovah Witnesses will come to the door and I'd engage with them and at one point I remember my parents were like yeah that's fine and this guy would come around and they'd put a chair outside for us to sit and he would talk to me about Jehovah and all of that. My mother went to a spiritual Pentecostal church in Nigeria they're called Celestial Church don't know if you've heard of Celestial Church of Christ mm-hmm. with an element of African spirituality dosed in. So I was very much invested in that. And then my dad at one point was like, our family is Muslim. You can't go to church anymore. You need to practice Islam. So I stopped going to church. I think I kind of rebelled in my late teens. I was like, I need to start going to church again. I was very much into church. I was born in the UK, but moved to Nigeria and then came back when I was in my late teens and yeah, was just heavily invested in the church, heavily invested in God. And I think for me, there was something there around, I feel flawed, I feel broken, I feel damaged, but being in the presence of God was going to heal me in some shape or form. Mm. And there was this particular day, I'll never forget it. I'd invited a friend who I'd say did not know I was gay, but at the same time, he knew I was gay. Did not know as if we'd never talked about it. I mean, I wasn't out. We just never talked about sexuality. Anyway, I'd invited him to church and we sat there. The church was very homophobic. And on this particular day, the pastor just went on one regarding gayness. It was like, gay people are going to hell. It's an abomination. And there was this moment where my friend just looked at me. We kind of looked at each other. And in his eyes, I... 
interpreted him just saying, what are you doing here? And so I stopped going to that church, but I was still very much interested in God. So I explored different churches, but just never really found anywhere. And then I came across an organization called the Interfaith Seminary in 2002. I kind of didn't really know anything about interfaith, but I liked the whole idea of interfaith, Mm. which was really looking at the different traditions, the different religions, looking at the essence that binds them. And so I became involved in that. I went to a seminary with Interfaith Foundation and became ordained as an interfaith minister. And what I really loved about that approach was it wasn't about dogma. It wasn't about traditions. It was about recognizing that each one of us needs to find our own path our own way of connecting with divinity, however we define divinity, our own way of connecting with that thing that is larger than who we are. And more recently, I've been really connecting with the whole notion of source, the source of everything, that from which we all came, and really connecting with that. So I don't consider myself as religious, but I certainly consider myself as as spiritual. And what I mean by that is connecting with with divine source, connecting with that force that is beyond my comprehension. Are you still an ordained minister? I don't practice as an interfaith minister, but yeah, it is one of my, I guess, label. It's one of the labels that I had. When I went to the seminary, it really wasn't with the intention of eventually practicing as a minister. Well, I should say formally practicing as a minister, because every single thing that I do is a form of ministry to some shape or form, because ultimately it's about creating spaces where people can connect with their hearts and express their hearts towards each other. And ultimately for me, That is what ministry is about. That is what connecting with divinity is all about. So it doesn't have to be like connected just to the church or religion. Yeah, exactly. It could be a conversation like we're having right now. We're having a ministry conversation because we're having a conversation where we are certainly creating room for open, honest and authentic dialogue. Hmm. When you mentioned the friend that you were at the church with when he looked at you. Was that him an acceptance of who you are? I saw it as curiosity. Okay. We have since had a conversation about me being gay. I mean, this was many, many years ago. We didn't talk about it for years. And then one evening, he shared something with me, really, really vulnerable. Um, After that call ended, I remember just thinking, he shared something really vulnerable with me, and I've not shared this part of who I am with him. And it just felt really imbalanced somehow. I mean, I knew that he knew. So I said a text message that read something like, I know you know that I'm gay, but I just wanted to bring voice to it and let you know that I am. Mm -hmm. And then he came back with, yes, I know that you are and I accept you for who you are. I remember when I came out or started the process of that, telling people and my fear 
And most people go, oh, yeah, I figured that out years ago. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that you were able to tell him that. Yeah, which wasn't always the case, because there have been people I've shared that with who have maybe just disappeared or who have reacted in a very confronting way. And there have been people like him who have been very accepting as well. And mm. what you do with counseling, all that you do, say for myself, finding ways as a gay man to work through my own assumption that all straight men will reject me. Mm. How do you navigate that in your own life? That is a great question. I just took part in a program with the Mankind Project. They do these Adventure Warrior Weekends. I think it started in the US and it is a process of connecting with our masculinity, men connecting with their masculinity. And I've wanted to do it for many years, but there've been two sort of reasons that I thought, oh, I'm not quite sure. One was to do with ethnicity, this feeling of I'm probably going to be the only person of color there. And whilst that is not really that big a deal, because I've been on many programs where I've been the only one or in the um, minority I just didn't want to go through that experience again. And then the other was, I'm probably going to be the only gay person. Anyway, they recently did a program for people of color. It was really, really amazing. But going back to your question, that was one of the things I talked about because I was certainly in the minority when it came to my sexuality. And it was so healing to be able to vocalize that dilemma to straight men and then go, oh, we accept you, we love you, we care for you. It was so healing. I remember at the end of the weekend, a number of the men coming up and saying how wonderful it was to be able to witness me talking about my fears, concerns, anxieties that I sometimes feel when I'm in the presence of I would say straight black men, actually. Mm. I think that's when, for me, can get activated. I just go into this default of they're going to reject me the minute they know. So I need to minimize me being gay in whatever form, like either by not talking about it or just watching my language and all of that. And these men on this program were really amazing, really, really wonderful. And when I left that weekend, I remember just feeling this sense of very often it's my own perceived fears that are the issue here because there are amazing straight men out there, the amazing straight black men out there who are accepting of gay people. And I got to experience that on this program. And it's called the Mankind? The Mankind Project. It's a global organization now. They have these weekends all across the world. It was really amazing. It was transformational. I loved it. It was so healing. And it really helped me connect with, yeah, my masculinity. Because at the end of the day, I identify as a man. I'm also Black and I'm also gay. And very often I can embody my Blackness. I can embody my gayness. But there was something around that masculinity, like... What does that even mean for a gay person? What does it mean? Can I fully embody it? Can I fully be in it? Because I grew up with those messages of I'm not man enough 
I'm a sissy, I'm soft, you need to man up. There were all these wounds I had around my masculinity and this program really helped me own it. Like, yeah, I am a man, I identify as a man and I'm proud of that. Soft was a an adjective that was used for me too. So so I was smiling. <laughs> I definitely get the sense that it's a group that gives space for men to be vulnerable, which seems to be more of a topic of conversation, much needed conversation these days. Men, you know, we have feelings too. Even, you know, the assumption I know I had coming out as gay is like, I'm going to come out as gay. I mean, all connected to my emotions. It's like, I'm still a man. I've still been indoctrinated in this system of, in some ways, toxic masculinity. There's huge healing that needs to happen within that. Like just normalizing men talking about emotions. Because I remember some years ago, I bumped into someone who used to be a friend. We hadn't seen each other in ages. And he's like, oh, what are you doing around here? And I was like, oh, I just left my therapist. And he was like, TMI, TMI, TMI. He went into this frenzy. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, no, you don't say that out loud. You don't tell people that. I'm like, but I just left my therapist. He's like, no, you don't say that. You need to say something like I've just left a meeting. I'm like, but why would I say I've just left a meeting when I've just left my therapist and I'm talking to you? And it was a really big thing. His approach was potentially so shaming. I mean, I didn't feel shame because I don't feel shame about seeing a therapist. But I was just so shocked that he would have that response. And I've shared that with other people and they'd be like, yeah, I've experienced stuff like that. As men, we don't talk about our inner world. We, we bottle it all up and act it out in different ways and form, but we just don't sit down with other men and talk about it. I don't think it just affects us. I'm really close with my aunt, my mother's sister, who's 82. And we've had some heart to hearts around relationships and she's acknowledged as a woman being married twice because of the society or the way that we're told to view men, the ways that she realizes now that she hurt the men that she was in relationships with because she didn't think, oh, well, this guy has feelings. Yeah. I may be saying things that are harming him emotionally. Oh, wow. So being on the receiving end from women as well who perceive men to not have the capacity and capability to navigate emotions. Yeah. After I'd left home, I remember my mom had written me a letter and in the letter she had said her nephew was feeling depressed because he had failed his exams. And I remember feeling like so shocked, like, oh, my mother is able to recognize emotion in men. That is really fascinating. I think some women do recognize it, but maybe they don't necessarily then engage and express it. Speaking of vulnerability, you're co-founder or founder of Walk With You. Can you tell us about that? This is my consultancy. And um, the whole idea of walking with the person is everything that we've been talking about today, actually. It's really around working with the individual through coaching, working with teams, individuals within teams through all sorts of training interventions or facilitations. It's really about accompanying the client, mm. coaching through consulting. Most of my experience was as a graphic designer. Ah, so okay. when I saw that logo, I was like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, thank you. It definitely captures the title, but also yeah. captures what you just shared. It's just something about it that, that feels organic and feels warm. 
So I definitely noticed that. Thank you. I mean, that is certainly my intention. I kind of see my role, personally and professionally, walking with people. Like right now, we're walking with each other as we're having this dialogue. Uh-huh. I thought of it that way. <laughs> I reread your piece, of course, in Black and Gay in the UK. I want to just say the title for the listeners. It's called Searching for Mangoes on Apple Trees. There's so much in that that I could uh, say, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> in rereading that, one of the other passages that stood out to me was I studied, went to work, and in between daydreamed about the moment a man, any man, would cross my path. We'd immediately fall in love, move in together, and be happy forever and ever. And my question around that is, was there an awareness of shame and guilt during that period of your life in the fact that you were conscious that you wanted to be romantically involved with the man? Not in an embodied way. I don't think it was there in an embodied way. I think that dream that I had was really a dream of getting to this place where I will feel worthy, where I'll feel good enough. So for me, it was about, yes, I'm going to meet this person and this person is going to meet all those unmet needs from my childhood. And then I'll go, oh, thank God I'm worthy. I'm, I'm happy. I'm together and I belong. I didn't see it as shame at the time. I think back to my late 20s, early 30s, that was a period of just complete disconnection from my authentic self. For me, that period was around compensating for shame. So looking for something outside of myself to make me feel good enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that extract really captures that. And the work that I've done and I continue to do in terms of my own journey has been about recognizing that to be alive is to be worthy. Like worthiness is my birthright. We are all inherently worthy. There's nothing outside of ourselves that's going to make us worthy. It's not going to be a possession or a person or a place. We are worthy. As an adult, when I look at that, I go, oh, yeah, of course that was shame. But at the time when I was in it, it was like, yeah, I'm going to get this partner and then I'm going to go, see, I am good enough. Like I'm going to get this wonderful six pack, my house, the car, go on amazing holidays. And it'd be like, yeah, see, I am good enough. As opposed to actually, I am good enough regardless of all those things. Yeah. In rereading it and being older now, being aware of some of the things that were similar in my past, definitely when I first came out, was being with somebody who has all the stuff that I wanted or has maybe some of the outside characteristics that I thought I needed to feel more of a full person, more of a whole person, and being in those relationships and going, but I still don't feel right. So what's going on here? Exactly. And that's what it felt like for me. I would get to that place, have that thing. And then within sometimes a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, it'd be like, oh, that thing has gone. That thing has gone. It was like being on drugs and taking that particular whatever it is and then going, oh, that effect is worn off so quickly. I need to go to that next thing. 
that's what I was like when it came to the men I dated, the jobs I went into, the places where I lived. It was always like looking for that next fix, that next fix that was going to, quote, make me worthy, as opposed to, oh, actually, I am already worthy. And what I need to do is to go within and do the work of reconnecting with that sense of worthiness. Is it okay to ask, where would you say you're at today with that? I mean, where I'm at today, the way that I would frame that is, it's a moment to moment thing. So in a particular moment, I can be feeling really amazing, grounded in my worthiness. And in other moments, I can be off center with that worthiness. Right now in this moment, I am feeling worthy. I am feeling good enough. I don't have that inner dialogue running in my mind right now. Like, am I making sense? Am I sort of being articulate? Am I being engaging? Like, I'm just like, well, I'm being myself. I'm being present. I'm being fully here. But, you know, in an hour's time, it might be completely different. And what I recognize is this is ongoing work, not just for me, but for all of us. There's a guy whose work I really love, Guy Winch, who is a a practitioner. I think he wrote a book called Emotional First Aid. And he talks about emotional hygiene. And the way that he talks about it is, he says, well, when it comes to our dental hygiene, our physical hygiene, we look after that on a regular basis. Like when I wake up in the morning, I brush my teeth, you know, I floss. Before I go to bed, I do the same. And when it comes to our emotional landscape, our mental landscape, it's important that we have some sort of hygiene as well. And that's how I kind of see it. So, so long as I have some sort of emotional hygiene practices, journaling is certainly one of them. Seeing my therapist is certainly one of them. Reading books is certainly another one. Going on workshops is another one. These are practices that I keep in place to avoid that going back to the dental analogy of that plaque building up so it's like what am i doing to ensure that the plaque is not building up any cavities that are in place are being sort of taken care of and i think so long as i have those emotional hygiene practices in place the closer i am to that sense of my inherent worthiness Yeah, well, when you shared about the person that you came on the street with when you said, oh, I've just gotten out of therapy to that point of practices, I remember years ago, because I've also done therapy and also connected around religion, they were like, oh, we'll just go pray about it if you're having a feeling or feeling down, which is okay. I'm not judging that. But I remember this person was like, well, but if somebody comes to you in pain, physical pain or you know, having dental issues, like you mentioned, you wouldn't say, go pray about it. Yeah. You'd say, what tools can you find? Where can you go to get help? Exactly. And when it comes to that inner landscape, I think all of us have a a responsibility to do the work of, yeah, cleaning that up. I mean, I talked about the dental analogy but it's like furniture look here I am there's a desk in front of me if I never dust this desk like clean it at some point there's going to be loads of dust on it 
surface of footing needs to be wiped down to ensure that any dust that is sort of accumulating on it is, is cleared off. And it's the same with our mental state, our emotional landscape. Like there needs to be that ongoing work of freeing ourselves from any cobwebs, dust, plaque that is starting to accumulate on, on any part of it. I got that image of the table. (laughs) (laughs) You're somebody who shares in a public way some of the personal experiences in your life. But how do you strike the balance of what to share publicly? Hmm. That's a great question, actually. The approach that I take, I know Brené Brown has talked about it and other practitioners have talked about this, is sharing from my scars and not my wounds. And there's a difference there between an open wound that could very easily get ruptured and start bleeding all over the place as I'm sharing it and sharing from a scar. So something that once upon a time was a wound, but it's healing. There's sign that there was once a wound there, but it's a scar. And so the stuff that I've shared today and the stuff that I share publicly, I'm always very conscious of, is this a scar or is it a wound? And if it's a wound, I take it to my therapist (laughs) to explore, to unpack, to see what's there. And at some point that wound might become a scar where I then talk about it, but I'm always checking in with myself. Is it a scar? Is it a wound? And if it's a wound, then maybe I need to take that sharing somewhere else rather than be sharing it in that public forum. I mean, there have been times, not that many, where I have shared a scar and someone has maybe responded in a way that has surprised me. And I'm like, oh, okay, this was a scar, but that comment has activated that scar. It's inflamed the scar and I need to just look after that. So in sharing our stories, it's not just about sharing the stories. It's about how we witness those stories as well. Mm. I think that is also really, really important because if a story is shared and it is witnessed in an unkind way, like, oh, it's not really that bad, is it? Or that doesn't really happen anymore. Or "Mm, I think you're exaggerating. If it's met in that way, that can undo the healing that has taken place regarding that particular scar. So I am conscious of my audience as well. Um, And at the same time, I am conscious of whether it's a scar or whether it's a wound. It's a great visual. The scar can be there and something can inflict or inflame it. For me, it's confirmation that this is all part of me. They're not separate. Exactly. Yeah, that is so true. So true. And, And when we go into spaces... These are the things that we bring in. This is part of our backstory. So as we're having this conversation where I'm talking about these scars, there's stuff I'm sure going on for you, Eric, as you're listening to this. And there's going to be stuff going on for the listeners as they listen to this as well. You know, hearing my scars, they might go, oh, actually, for me, that is still a wound. And so the healing continues for all of us. It's an ongoing journey. I'm not sure whether it ever ends. I kind of see it as this lifelong healing processes for all of us. Well, hearing that frees me up from trying to be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So when you're not 
finding ways to heal the world, what do you do in your leisure time or to relax? Heal the world and heal myself as well. I think those two certainly go, uh, go together. Yeah. When I'm not doing that, I really love being at home. It's interesting with COVID a couple of years ago and lockdown, it sort of gave me that invitation, permission to celebrate being indoors. So I could very easily be found lounging on a sofa, watching something on one of the streaming platforms, like binging a series or something like that. And if I'm not doing that, walking in nature is certainly something that I enjoy. I enjoy connecting with friends. So might be on a Zoom call with a friend, just chatting, like we're chatting now, like I'm enjoying this conversation that we're having because it's very much like in dialogue with a friend, even though I'm doing most of the talking. But <laughs> if it was a different sort of opportunity, it might be me also asking you loads of questions. I'm really interested in people generally. So yeah, if I'm not sort of lounging on the couch, out in nature, I might be having an enriching conversation with a, with a friend. Okay. I also love travel as well. My husband and I decided last year that we needed to go away every quarter. It's like, okay, every quarter we need to make a plan to go away. We both love traveling. But what could very easily happen is we get caught up in talking about our love of travel and not necessarily traveling. Like, oh, yeah, we could go there. We could go there. And then it's like, oh, December is here. Where did we go? Oh, nowhere other than our summer holiday. So we were really good last year. We went to every quarter. And this year we're sort of keeping up that tradition as well. So we're off to Florence in a couple of months, actually. Oh, okay. I just recently interviewed somebody who's in Florence from there, lives there. Oh, beautiful. We've both been a few times and um, I love Florence. I'm looking forward to us going back. When you mentioned home and the enjoyment of home, one of the first things when the call came on is like, ah, that looks really nice. <laughs> Very peaceful. <laughs> yeah, I love being in this space, actually. Home for me is being grounded, being settled, being safe, feeling secure, feeling soothed, feeling welcomed. We've created a home that I love being in. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and learning more about you and what you do and who you are. So yeah, thank you. Thank you too. Thank you for the opportunity, Eric. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts, comments? I guess the final comment will be going back to what I was saying about emotional hygiene and doing that work and wishing the listeners compassion and courage as they do their own work and find their own way of cultivating the behaviors for consistent emotional hygiene. Mm, I like that. Where can we engage with you online? My website is walkwithyou.me. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. And it's Outtails. Outtails is the handle. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. 
Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.